A very warm welcome to everyone to the LSE for this online event. My name is Nicola Lacey and I'm School Professor of Law, Gender and Social Policy at the LSE. And I have the great pleasure of chairing this event this evening. It's an event hosted by, the, by LSE Law and also by the Department of Government to celebrate the achievements and to assess the legacy of the formidable Ruth Bader Ginsburg, former Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. Justice Ginsburg served on the court for 27 years until her death in September. The first Jewish woman to do so, and only the second woman in the court's history. During her tenure, she carved out a quite extraordinary place in American legal history, as well as a unique standing in popular culture as a passionate and fearless defender of liberal principles in general and of gender equality in particular. It's really difficult, I think, to think of other legal figures in the US or elsewhere who have occupied a comparable role. And today we both celebrate Justice Ginsburg's legacy and reflect on the qualities and the circumstances which underpinned that unique position as not only a feminist legal pioneer, but also a sort of cultural icon. To do so, I'm really delighted to welcome and introduce a very distinguished panel. First and foremost, I'd like to welcome to the LSE, virtually, uh, but very warmly, uh, Kelsey Brown Corcoran, who really couldn't be, a, there couldn't be anyone better to uh, uh, talk to us about uh, Justice Ginsburg, because Kelsey is a former law clerk of uh, Justice Ginsburg. Uh, uh, Kelsey is based in Washington, DC, and following a very distinguished career in practice as head of Supreme Court litigation at Oric Harrington Sutcliffe, as well as periods at the Department of Justice and in the White House Communications Office, Kelsey recently joined Georgetown University Law Center as a senior fellow at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, where she focuses on civil rights litigation in the United States Supreme Court, something of which she has experienced herself. So welcome, Kelsey. Then uh, a warm welcome to my colleague, Dr. Mona Paulson. Uh, Mona is Assistant Professor in International Economic Law, having joined the LSE just, just last year from Stanford Law School. She works in the fields of public international law, international trade law, economic development, and international investment law and arbitration. And last but not least, my colleague, and Professor Anne Phillips from the Government Department. Anne is Graham Wallace Professor of Political Science in the Department of Government and a former director of LSE's Gender Institute. She works uh, uh, on uh, feminist political theory, political theory quite generally, theories of equality. And among many publications relevant to this evening's event, she is the author of The Politics of Presence, The Political Representation of gender, race, and culture. For any of you in the audience who are Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSERBG, which I like to think the notorious RBG would have felt had a nice kind of rappy kind of feel to it. Uh, that, that, I'm not responsible for that, but thank you, whoever was. Um, this online event is being recorded 
And uh, we hope if there are no technical difficulties that we will be made available as a podcast uh, very soon. As usual, of course, there'll be a chance for you all to put your questions to our panel and we'll make sure that we leave time for that at the end. Uh, to submit the questions, would you please use the Q&A function? I believe some instructions have anyway been put there for you. Um, uh, questions will be submitted to me and then I'll take them in groups of two or three, depending on the time available and the number of questions. Um, we're very, very keen, especially to hear from our students, uh, our alumni, uh, our incoming students. So please do tell us uh, your name and affiliation if you're able to do so. Now, uh, just a word about how the event's going to proceed. Within the inevitable constraints of the webinar format, we're going to try and run this event in as informal and sort of conversational a way as possible, just as Justice Ginsburg so often gave wonderful interviews. We're going to try and honor her in that, in that way as well. And I'm going to start by asking Kelsey about her experience of working with Justice Ginsburg and the legacy in particular of Justice Ginsburg period on the Supreme Court. I'll then turn to Mona, uh, who will talk as a woman academic the early part of whose career was in North America. And she's going to talk um, about the sort of impact of having those strong female role models breaking ground on discrimination and women's rights and about the legacy of Justice Ginsburg's also very important time as a law professor and as an, a, a litigator at the ACLU. And finally, I'll turn to Anne, who will talk about why equality in fields such as senior judicial appointments really matters. Uh, and I'll also, towards the end of my conversation with Kelsey, I'll give Anne and Mona a chance to ask Kelsey a question if they would like to do so. So Kelsey, uh, thanks again so much for being with us. And I wondered if you might just start off by telling us a little bit about that extraordinary experience that you had, I think, just under 10 years ago, of spending a year as Justice Ginsburg's clerk. And it would probably be great for our audience if you explained a bit about what the clerk's role is, because we don't have anything directly comparable in, in, this, uh, in this country. Yes, well, first, I am so happy to be here. This is the first time I've spoken to an international audience about the justice, and it just means uh, a great deal to me. I'm feeling just a little emotional about the idea that the international community is um, interested in her legacy as well. So, so thank you for the, having this event and for including me. Um, so, uh, clerking is a it's a hundred year old custom for the United States Supreme Court, which is quite old by American terms, at least. Uh, each justice has four clerks uh, who stay for one year. Um, it's generally um, relatively uh, young or junior attorneys, um, and you start in July and you go through the next July. Um, and your job is to assist the justice and uh, everything she does. So we would write memos, making recommendations on which cases uh, the court should hear. Uh, we would write what were called bench memos uh, on the cases that the court was hearing, kind of making recommendations on which way the case should come out. Of course, the justice would always decide for herself, but kind of the, the 
strengths and weaknesses of both sides' arguments. Uh, we uh, would assist in drafting opinions. Uh, so uh, with Justice Ginsburg, we would sit with her and she would outline what she wanted the opinion to say. And then we would go back and do the draft and then give it to her and then work very closely with her until it was finalized. At that point, it was entirely her own work. Um, so it was a very close relationship. You sit in chambers with her and, and worked with her on a daily uh, basis. It's one of the most incredible experiences that a, a young lawyer can have. I can imagine. So um, I've noticed from many of her interviews that Justice Ginsburg often talks about her clerks. She often alludes to one of her former clerks being there in the audience. It sounds as, as though she had very close relationships with them. What, what was she like to, to work for and with and what was her sort of working style? Uh, Yes. Yeah, so she, so, so one thing I'll, I'll note about her, um, if you've seen the movie on the basis of sex, you know, she was an incredibly accomplished law student, graduated first in her class, and she was recommended to clerk, uh, on the Supreme Court to Justice Frankfurter, who was initially willing to hire a woman. And then when he found out she had children, he said no. Um, he was not going to have a mother as a clerk. Um, so one thing that Justice Ginsburg, uh, made an effort to do was to hire law clerks who were parents. Um, and so when I interviewed with her at one point mentioned I had a four-year-old and a one-year-old and uh, she smiled and asked some questions and then offered me the clerkship. So I did have small children when I was there, like many of uh, her clerks. And so she was not a boss who uh, insisted that we were in the office at all times if she didn't need us, um, appreciating that we had responsibilities at home as well. Um, but uh, she, when she was working intently on something, um, if we drafted an opinion for her, it would be in triple space. So there's lots of space for her to, to edit it by hand. And then she would bring you into her chambers and you'd sit next to the fireplace and she would go over each one of her edits with you to explain why she had made the change, what she wanted you to do. Um, and so this was just an incredible process to, to work with. Um, just, I mean, her brilliance, um, her, her legacy and to have that one-on-one -on -one time with her. And she was great about her, her love language was gifts. So she, we celebrated every birthday in chambers and she would have a present for the, the um, staff member whose birthday it was. And we'd have cupcakes and Prosecco and, um, and, and, and sit around and celebrate. She would take us to the opera. And even after the clerkship, I would uh, go back to visit her a couple of times a year. I had the privilege of arguing in, in front of her uh, uh, and uh, to just to get her, her advice and support. Um, she was she was always there for all of us. Mm, how wonderful. And she, what about her own sort of work practices? Presumably she's an, an incredibly, was an incredibly hard, hard worker. And we hear all about the breadth of her life, her, the, the sort of depth of her engagement with her family and her extended family, including her class, her love of opera and so on. But she accomplished so much. She must have been incredible, had an incredible capacity for working hard and long hours at high up. Yes, yes. I don't think she, I, I, she didn't really um, have any downtime other than going to the opera. Um, she was not someone who watched TV or, <laughs> or did much else. Um, she also didn't sleep. Um, she was known for being in chambers, particularly after her husband died. She could be there well past midnight. Um, she often would say that she slept on Thursdays, just Thursdays, because the court would hear cases on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then have conference on Friday. So she'd catch up on her sleep. Uh, once a week. Uh, but that, that was 
part of the reason she was so productive. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't she didn't make much time for anything else. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I, I must say I was very, she had a wonderful sense of humour, didn't she? And I was very amused in, in one of the interviews I listened to that she, uh, when she said that her, her daughter had been absolutely delighted when she really started to prioritise her career and her husband started doing the cooking because he was a much better cook. Yes. <laughs> um, so shall we move on to, to talk about Justice Ginsburg's legacy, just from, from really from her period at the Supreme Court? Obviously, she's world renowned for her contributions on gender equality on and, and a range of other issues perhaps most famously for, uh, for her work on uh, her decisions on equal pay and uh, the Virginia military the exclusion of women and yeah. you know she she obviously made an enormous impact I, I wonder if you'd like to just talk to us a bit about how, how what you think are his, her most important contributions and I you know I've got some follow-up questions so but why don't you just start us off and then we'll pursue that um so I you know I'll talk about uh, my term uh, you, do you mean in, in terms of particular decisions um yeah, or yeah. okay I'll come to uh, her, her sort of style and her yeah Yes, the the most high profile case, the term that I clerked was um, Burwell v. Hobby Lobby. And so this was a challenge brought by some privately held corporations to a regulation that required health, uh, any health insurance that they provided include coverage for birth control. So uh, an issue that was particularly important to the justice. Mm -hmm. Um, And the corporation said that the regulation was unlawful because it uh, substantially burdened uh, the religious exercise or the religious rights of the corporation um, because the owners of the corporation believed that birth control was immoral. And five of the justices agreed with that uh, and held that the, uh, the government could not require these corporations to provide birth control as part of their health insurance um, because of their religious beliefs uh, and that the government did not have a compelling interest in in requiring the corporations to provide birth controls. Uh, And so as Justice Ginsburg often did, she dissented um, and she explained first her disagreement with the majority's decision to recognize corporations as having religious rights, which is a pretty extraordinary thing um, that a corporation would have uh, religious beliefs based on those of the uh, owners. Um, and, and second, to explain that the majority had ignored the impact of the ruling on the millions of women who depend on their employers' health insurance for their reproductive rights. So I, I think I, I think that dissent exemplifies uh, her legacy uh, on the court, particularly in the later years, in, in terms of um, calling out the majority for ignoring um, voices of, of, of of marginalized groups and kind of focusing on the voices of the very powerful corporation owners in that case. Mm. Do you think, I mean, she, she is, as you say, she's sort of famous for, for the, her beautifully honed dissents, which often had a very big impact in the longer term. It is being a common law judge, even in as powerful a tribunal as the Supreme Court of the US um, is not uh, it's not a job that necessarily always lends itself to any kind of strategy. I mean, you know, Justice Ginsburg came out of a history of campaigning litigation, something that's probably, again, more common in the States than it is in the UK. Um, and yet she, she, do you think she had a sort of um, 
medium to long-term sense of the sorts of things she wanted to accomplish on the court? And was that realised in things like her uh, arguments about which cases should be taken and that, that sort of thing? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I know I'm, Mona will talk more, I think, about the justices' earlier work um, as a litigator, but I think people are generally familiar that, that she uh, litigated six gender equality cases before the Supreme Court in the 1970s, which dramatically shifted uh, law. At, at that time, it was not unlawful in the United States to uh, have gender stereotypes baked into our federal laws. And after the justice uh, did her work over that decade, um, it, it, it was. Um, so part of her, kind of the early years on the court, I think was continuing that work. Um, you had mentioned earlier the Virginia case, which is the Virginia Military Institute uh, case from 1996, where the court held that uh, the Virginia Military Institute, uh, their admissions policy of excluding women was uh, unlawfully discriminatory. And in that decision, she's citing many of the cases that she litigated in the 1970s that, that Mona will talk about more in a little bit. So I think that was a joy for her to, to, to move from having litigated these issues to writing the majority opinion. Um, but I think as most people know as well, over the years, particularly in her later time on the court, um, uh, there, the court shifted uh, to the right considerably and became more conservative. Uh, and so a lot of what she was doing, particularly in the last 10 to 15 years was dissenting. Um, so I don't know that she, you know, as she's writing a dissent, she realizes she's not changing the law in that moment, but she spoke about the dissenter's hope, which was the hope that by telling the truth and putting it in writing now, she was laying a marker for future generations to effectuate that change. Um, so she was hopeful in, in doing that work while at the same time realizing she probably wasn't going to see it come to fruition herself. How would you characterize her, her sort of judicial style? Um, she's, she's obviously thought of now as, you know, the icon of the, the liberal part of the court. And she herself talked about the way in which, you know, there was always a disproportionate focus on the five, four decisions and on her sort of, as it were, you know, role as a sort of uh, standard leader for the liberal wing as the composition of the court changed. But if I remember right at her, her um, confirmation hearings, she described herself as having neither a conservative nor a liberal sort of disposition as a judge or, or, or character quality as a judge and uh, had been really thought of when she was first appointed to the appellate bench in her previous appointment as a sort of very much a consensus builder on the bench. So what, what do you think uh, changed that and how did her time on the court shape her own uh, thoughts? So I don't think the justice changed. Um, she was always uh, committed to, to telling the whole story. So, you know, when she was litigating, she was telling the truth about gender stereotypes. They didn't reflect the lived experiences of people in America, right? Men could be good caretakers. Women could be primary income earners. And then when she moved onto the court, um, she was doing that same work, but she was talking about reproductive rights. She was talking about workers' rights. She was talking about racial discrimination. So she expanded, I think, that flashlight she was putting on um, 
uh, the parts of society that our legal system has not typically recognized. Um, I don't think she moved to the left. She was always very focused on the rule of law and in particular her criminal law decisions were not especially uh, liberal. I think I think actually, if you look at the court's opinions, Justice Sotomayor probably is the anchor of the left on the court. But as you say, she did become, you know, she was the most senior of the, the liberal leaning justices in those last years. So she was often in charge of deciding who would write the dissenting opinion. And she wrote many powerful decisions herself. But I think it was to the extent that she seemed to have moved further left over time. I think that was uh, mostly a product of the court moving right. And certainly when Justice Alito replaced Justice O'Connor, that was a big shift uh, in the court's kind of ideological inclinations. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder, it was also, there was an issue about a heightened uh, perception of the political significance of the Supreme Court. I mean, I was very struck in preparing for this evening to discover, not only I was aware that that Justice Binsberg had been confirmed in her confirmation hearings by an absolute landslide, so 90, I think it was 96 votes yeah. to three. Um, but also I, what I hadn't appreciated was that in those confirmation hearings, nobody alluded to uh, in any depth or in any sense of that it was controversial, her work as an ACLU campaigning litigator, or as she, I think herself put it, a furious feminist litigator. Um, Am I right in thinking that would be pretty unthinkable today? Unthinkable. It would not happen. Um, uh, it, our country has just changed, um, particularly, I think, in the, the 1990s, but in the 2000s as well. Our uh, judicial nomination process became much more politicized. Um, so, so, yes, uh, I, I, it's hard to... The, the amount of opposition you would see to someone with Justice Ginsburg's profile now, if they were nominated, uh, I think says much more about how our country has changed than any change in the, the justice herself. So obviously we think of her as somebody who, who made an extraordinary uh, contribution to uh, making more robust the constitutional protections uh, on gender equality. And she was a a long-standing, I, I think I'm right in saying, and very vocal supporter of the Equal Rights Amendment, even though she sort of thought it needed to be restarted as a, yes. as a campaign. Um, what are the other areas where you think she really made made a big contribution on the court and, and had a, had a very particular interest as a as a constitutional lawyer? So the the decision that she wrote that actually propelled her into worldwide fame was the dissent in uh, Shelby County v. Holder in 2013. It was a week before I started clerking. Um, this is the case where the majority struck down uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, on the ground that it was no longer necessary to um, uh, uh, pre prevent racial discrimination in, in uh, voting access. Uh, and the justice wrote one of her classic dissents where she explained uh, that striking down the Voting Rights Act because it was working too well was like throwing away your umbrella during a rainstorm because you weren't getting wet. Uh, and uh, she was, of course, it was it, it's a beautifully brilliant uh, opinion, but it struck a chord at that moment in 2013. And that was when um, a number of law students started the meme. So you got the meme of her with the chalk crown that said you can't spell truth without Ruth. 
Uh, and then there were Tumblrs at that time. I don't even know if Tumblr still exists, but a website. Uh, and that was where they, uh, some NYU students gave her the label, the Notorious RBG. Uh, and uh, I think some of them put together a video of a Notorious B.I.G. song called Juicy, where they had redone all of the words about the justice. And so that was right when I had gotten there to clerk. Um, so we, I was had the honor um, in history of, of being there when we explained to the justice who Notorious B.I.G. was. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, that opinion, I think, is really important substantively, but it's also a turning point in kind of the, the cultural phenomenon she became because it just it was exponential from there. When I started my clerkship, she was pretty famous in legal circles. By the time I ended the clerkship a year later, she had worldwide fame. How did I mean? I've already mentioned, and you've you've implied she had a, she had a very good keen sense of humor. How did she take that particular in the first moment? She obviously came to enjoy it, but was she quite? Was she amused? Was she? How did she take it? She was amused. You know, we showed her the juicy video. We because at the time it was so novel that someone had made a video about her within ten years. The of course there were feature films about her, but at the time it was it was you know, and and she was I, I thought thought of you know she thought it was fun, but it didn't really change the work we were doing, right? We were still sitting there most of the time in chambers, quietly by the fireplace, working on the opinions, rewriting them, right? The, the work itself wasn't done in that spotlight. And I think so. She, as, as famous as she was, at one time, maybe two or three years after that, I introduced her at an event and walked into a convention ballroom with her. And it was like walking in with a rock star. I mean, the way that people were cheering and I, it was startling to me because that was kind of her life when she was outside of the court, right? That she was treated um, like a rock star, but in chambers, which is where she spent most of her time, it was a quiet place with just her and the clerks and her staff doing the, the substantive work. Can I ask you a little bit about her, her very well-known close friendship with Antonin Scalia, uh, a very unlikely you know, closest friend among the justices, given that they were often on opposite sides of, of the legal argument, let alone the, the sort of uh, liberal versus conservative insofar as that makes sense. I mean, what, what do you think, apart from opera, which they both shared a love of, what do you think was the real um, uh, meeting of minds there? You know, I, I think she enjoyed his sense of humor. He was uh, incredibly entertaining. He was warm also. I mean, we had a tradition at the time where each of the justices would go out to lunch with each set of clerks. So with my fellow RBG clerks, we went to an Italian restaurant with Justice Scalia and sat around for a couple of hours. And he was wonderful. And to spend that time with us and, um, uh, you know, I, I certainly saw the appeal of, of, of him and, and that friendship, their families were very close. Uh, and that was a time when I think it was easier, at least in the United States to, to, kind of just assume that good, smart people can disagree profoundly about things. Um, or, or a lot has changed. Um, I like to think that that's still true in many ways, um, but it was a, it was a simpler time. Um, and so I think they were, uh, had a deep respect and affection for each other. And as she has said, and he has said as well, they made each other's opinions better uh, by kind of honing their positions and, and pushing back on each other. And the Supreme Court was better for it. She was very uh, amusing as well as touching after in, in late talks after uh, Justice Scalia's death about how uh, he would correct her grammar and she <laughs> would try to persuade him otherwise in some of his legal views, but she never succeeded. 
Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask something. We're going to come on to the question of, of her, you know, her why she was such a culturally resonant uh, figure. But one of the things that's obvious when you listen to her speak, particularly in those later interviews where she's really very extraordinarily relaxed, um, is that she she has this quite extraordinary uh, prose style and, and speaking ability, it, which combines in I think a very unusual way the sort of precision, the analytic precision that characterizes some of the highest level legal argumentation with an almost sort of folksy, um, it's partly a sort of common law thing of being very good at always coming up with an example, but the example is very often very much rooted in the whole of life as it were. It's, it's not, uh, you mentioned something about in her, her uh, you know, litigation and, and judgments on equality. Um, do you think that uh, increased her, uh, um, I, know, I know that the, it's a very collegial and a very discursive court, the Supreme Court, it's a very intense court, the, the justices exchange ideas and views a lot. Do you think that was an important tool in terms of her influence on the other justices in the court over time? Interesting question. You know, she, she had a very distinct writing style, as you say, um, and a lot of it was stylistic and she was very concise. There was never an extra word in anything she wrote. Um, and she had particular idiosyncrasy. So she never used the word because it was always for. Um, and she had words, she made up the word path marking. Um, uh, when she wanted to talk about an important opinion, she would say it was path marking. Uh, and, and you would see that word in almost, we would as clerks try to get in, into opinions. I hope they put it in the dictionary at some point. Um, uh, but she was always polite, right? There was never, um, she was incisive in her rhetoric. She was straightforward. She did not mince words, but she was also always respectful. There was never any snark in her opinions um, and particularly in uh, kind of no unnecessary jabs. And I, I think that did um, uh, help her or um, th that her colleagues had a lot of respect for her. The other piece of it, which is interesting, um, I don't know if you were getting at this as well as her speaking um, style, uh, the justice would often take long pauses when she was talking. And I remember before I interviewed with her, I was told count to three after she says something before you respond, just to make sure she's done. Uh, and sure enough, you would start counting in your head and then she would kind of complete the thought. And it was just uh, what I love so much about it. Uh, one, nothing ever came out of her mouth that wasn't exactly what she wanted to say. Um, and two, she wasn't going to be rushed. Right. So often as women, when we're trying to be heard and um, uh, it, it can be difficult and she would command attention, um, she would command the room uh, and you would wait to hear what she had to say. And once you got comfortable with the silence, right, often you could be having a very intense conversation with her that had lots of quiet spots while you both just sat there and thought a little bit and then responded Um I think about that as a lot as someone who tends to speak quickly and, <laughs> and always want to kind of jump in. Um, I, I think there's a lot to learn from her on that as well. I think that's fascinating. I must say that's something I was struck by watching her over the last few days. It, it's very authoritative. It's very powerful that mm -hmm. taking her time in her own space, it conveys a real authority. And I, I very, I've only ever 
uh, encountered Justice Ginsburg once at a talk at NYU. And I remember that very much about her, that she had this when she came in. She had tiny as she was. Yes. She had an extraordinary presence. Um, she's the sort of person you sort of felt so you ought to stand up when she came in, even though she wasn't really intimidating. It was when she starts talking, she's very, uh, very warm, it seems, in, in her persona. Um, but I'd like to sort of move on to this, this question of why she became, I and mean, you've explained the context specifically of the, uh, the voting rights uh, decision. Um, which, which sort of changed the scale in a way of her cultural resonance. So I'd like to just, this is very speculative, I'd like to just pause on this a little bit. I mean, there are lots of reasons why she might have had a very particular uh, salient. She's a very rare woman. She's a very rare woman who's an absolutely forthright feminist. She's a rare woman in, uh, I think, but very rare woman actually among very successful women for being very clear about her own discrimination, experience of discrimination. She talked, didn't she, about having to, feeling she had to hide her first pregnancy uh, because she might lose her job, uh, or her second pregnancy, actually. Uh, um, she talked uh, about, she. Uh, I remember uh, Martha Minow, when, who, when, when she was dean at Harvard, telling me that Ruth Ginsburg never visited without quietly making a, a jokey but serious allusion to the fact that Harvard did not treat her very well when she was a student. Um, you know, she, she had this, this, this power and this authenticity and, and courage to be super open about things without in a way being resentful. That, that could also have been uh, very appealing. Then there was her, you know, the, the range of issues. Um, but I also sort of wonder about um, two, two things. I mean, one is whether I, I was thinking about what, what, what analogies are there? Well, we have uh, the first female president of our Supreme Court, uh, Baroness Hale, very, very comparable with Ruth Ginsburg in many ways in that she started life as an academic. She's very uh, open person. She's a very, very open feminist, always has been. She was a, a, a path breaker in that way. And of course, our recent prorogation decision gave her quite extraordinary profile, which has catapulted her into a certain kind of cultural space that is very, very rare for a judge in this country. Um, but Ruth Ginsburg, I mean, rap songs, Hollywood movies, documentaries, a comic opera about her friendship with Scalia. I mean, one could just go on and on and on. It's, it's something extraordinary. Is it about that unusual thing of, of a, you know, somebody in highest office just presenting themselves as a, a, a sort of real approachable person in a way that people feel they can appropriate them, they can sort of have a relationship with them? Or is it, you know, is there a certain kind of like, almost it's easier to own female, uh, mm -hmm. famous people than others? I mean, I, I don't know, what, what do you make of it? As a, as an yeah. So she was person. always extraordinary. Um, I mean, I, I think that the cultural phenomenon, though, the timing of it is closely tied, one, to the Supreme Court moving further right. Again, it was 2006 when Justice Alito replaced Justice O'Connor. And starting then, you start to see the Supreme Court more aggressively um, uh, issuing decisions uh, restraining constitutional rights. 
Uh, and so, you know, we get to 2013 with the Shelby County decision and people were upset and paying attention to what the Supreme Court was doing in a way that they hadn't before, because you could see that this was going to have a real impact on uh, voting access for millions of people. And so once, you know, as a culture, as a country, we're paying more attention to what the Supreme Court's doing, you look to this dissent and you realize this tiny woman, she was, I guess, 80, 80 years old at the time, was writing, was the one who was standing up and telling the truth. And I think probably her size and being a woman and kind of just the imagery of her um, speaking and pushing back on this almost, you know, she wasn't by herself. She was writing on behalf of the liberal justices was very powerful. And then you combine that with the internet at the time, right? Um, mm -hmm. So suddenly there were such things as memes and tumblers and things going viral and trending. Uh, and so that kind of pushed her into the limelight. Um, I liked, you know, I hadn't thought about it being easier to appropriate women before. I've always thought it, it's so extraordinary that particularly at least in American society, as women get older, we become um, less significant, right? There's this idea that you start to kind of disappear, um, particularly when you uh, get to, you know, she was 80 at the time that this happened. So it it went against our kind of cultural uh, uh, inclinations to, to, to move her into this kind of rock star status. Uh, there aren't a lot of women in that age bracket who um, have been kind of elevated at that time and in, in that way, and hopefully that continues. Um, so I, I think I think it's lovely. I think it's such a great thing. I love that we're still able to talk to her about her um, and hopefully we'll continue to talk about her um, for years to come because I think she did inspire so many people um, and kind of the, the combination of those uh, uh, different forces made it possible to do that. So I'm, I'm grateful for it all. Well, that's, I, I, I could go on asking you questions for at least another half hour, but I'm going to bring in Mona and Anne now because uh, we, we must move on and perhaps I'll have a bit more time later on. That, that was so fascinating, Kelsey. Thank you. So, um, Mona, I, I think it might make sense if you, I don't know if you have a, a question for Kelsey or whether you'd like to just lead off and tell us what Ruth Bader Ginsburg meant to you. I do have a question for Kelsey, though, first. Is that all right? Mm. Um, so Kelsey, one of the things that I sort of was really curious in hearing in hearing you speak about the justice was starting from July when you began and that July when you finished. For those law students that are in the audience and students just at LC, how, how did that experience uh, alter your perception of being a lawyer? And one of the greatest lessons that you learned about being a lawyer, just from being with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, being at the Supreme Court and having that experience, I think would be would be interesting to hear your thoughts. It's, it's a great question. I, you know, I had clerked for a court of appeals judge before I clerked for the justice. So I already had an appreciation at that point of just the educational value of, of having, I mean, how often in life do you get to sit one-on-one -on -one with someone who is that level of brilliance and expertise and experience and have them teach you how to write better, how to think better? Um, and so certainly in those moments when she would spend hours with us one-on-one -on -one going over each edit, she wasn't doing that for her sake. She was doing that for ours. Um, so the, the kind of the having that sort of exposure to her thought process, I think, sharpened my own writing and my own thinking. Um, but I think also uh, the inspiration of uh, 
at no point was she kind of sitting back and just letting other people do the work to, to the day she died. She was so committed to her work and to excellence, right? There's no room for sloppy thinking. There's no room for not quite getting it right. It has to be perfect because it's your responsibility. Um, and that's true for a judge. And it's true for me now as an advocate representing clients. Um, I certainly, I carry that with me uh, and will continue for the rest of my career. Thanks, Kelsey. And did you have a question at this point or should we move on to Mona? Um, I think maybe given the timing, we should move yeah. on to Mona. And, uh... Very good. Okay, so Mona, over to you. What does, uh, I'm going to repeat to you the question you just asked Kelsey, which is what, what did Ruth Bredigensburg mean to you and, and what do you make of her also very important legacy before she became a judge? Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, thank you all for, for this wonderful event, by the way, as well. Thank you to Nikki Lacey for organizing it. So I, I can't tell you how elated I was on my first day of teaching here at the LSC uh, to teach international trade and walk in on my first day and discover that in my class, the majority were women. Uh, they were all intelligent, engaged women. They were listening, reflecting. They were challenged by the law and to learn the law. And at the end of that term, one of those female students met with me and she explained that she had never thought to take trade law, but in seeing a female professor's name, she thought she would try. And I was deeply moved by that reflection. And I promptly told my mentor here at LSE that, that story right away. And I've been researching Justice Ginsburg, learning from her biographies and those who have written about her life and legacy, listening now to Kelsey talk about that personal connection and experience. And, and I, I thought a lot about her time, as, as mentioned, uh, as a law professor. And when Ruth Bader Ginsburg started teaching in 1963, there were few women students. She remarked uh, at one point that there were perhaps five or six in a class of over 100. And, you know, we don't live in a bias-free world and there's more work to be done. And I think to that first students and all my future students, and I know we need to work harder to strive for diversity in the bench and in our elected leaders and in our classrooms and in our work, and to see that representation of all gender identities and sexual orientation and race and class. and. Ginsburg herself may not have even ended up being a law professor, as Kelsey noted, had it not been for difficulties in finding a job at a law firm after graduating. This was now from Columbia University Law School after she had moved. Um, and so if I can reflect on a moment of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's strength and sheer tenacity as a law student, she began at Harvard, which had only just a few years earlier had begun accepting women a few years before. And Ruth was managing a toddler. And I, as I learned from my research, aiding her husband, Marty Ginsburg, another law student as he was embattling cancer. And, you know, I think about that uh, and to do that and to come out at the top of her class. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had to be both brilliant, but more an incredibly hard worker, someone who earned that degree. And Justice Ginsburg's first academic appointment was at Rutgers Law School, so Professor Ginsburg. Uh, she stayed there until she became a tenured professor at Columbia in 1972, and she began her career focused on civil procedure. But by 1970, uh, as, as Kelsey had noted, she had begun to focus her energy on gender equality. And on reflecting on that, 
She explained in a speech at the University of Cape Town, South Africa, it was my good fortune to be able to be in the right place at the right time and able to participate in the effort to place women's rights permanently on the human rights agenda in the United States. And there was little scholarly attention on the legal status of women at the time. And with great spirit or chutzpah in Yiddish, Professor Ginsburg created a seminar on sex discrimination and the law at Harvard in 1970. And she commuted from New York. And she continued to offer the course on Columbia at Columbia. Uh, and until, you know, she, 1974, authored a casebook on sex-based discrimination. And thinking about that time, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg observed, our mission in the 1970s was easy. The targets were well-defined. There was nothing subtle about the way things were. And I have no doubt that her personal experiences drove her. And I think this is a woman in a man's world unwilling to accept the system. And instead she decides to tear open legal academia and scrutinize the law's role in gender inequality. And I think that's just emblematic of who she was. And she began working, as they noted, on the American Civil Liberties Union. That's an organization that's committed to preserving the human rights in the United States. And her woman in the law course included a practical component where students actually got to work on real cases uh, that appeared on the American Civil Liberties Union's or ACLU's New Jersey affiliate. The first was an appeal to the Federal Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit on behalf of Mr. Charles Moritz. Mr. Moritz had challenged a provision of the Internal Revenue Code that provided a tax deduction to employed persons for the cost of providing care to their dependents when they worked, unless they were single men, as Charles Moritz was. So in this case, Mr. Moritz had encountered discrimination as the tax code allowed single women, but not single men, to deduct the costs of caring for dependents. In this case, Mr. Moritz wanted to care for his elderly mother, and he was denied a $600 dependent care deduction from the tax court. I really loved this story that they came, they came by Professor Ginsburg's husband, Marty Ginsburg, and he wrote in a speech in 2010 that he walked into Ruth's office and told her to read Mr. Moritz's one-page submission to the tax court because in it, he saw a constitutional objection. And within minutes, Ruth Bader Ginsburg took up the appeal pro bono with the ACLU. And in Moritz, Ginsburg, Ginsburg delivered a powerful argument in favor of gender, and, uh, gender equality under the Equal Protection Component of the Fifth Amendment. And in the Tenth Circuit, Judge Holloway wrote for the panel and found that Mr. Moritz was denied the law's equal protection. And he reversed the tax court and let Mr. Moritz have his deduction. And the government, the U.S. government, petitioned for review of that Tenth Circuit's decision. The U.S. Solicitor General, that's the Justice Department official who represents the United States in the Supreme Court, filed a cert petition. That's where the Solicitor General lays out the case for why the U.S. Supreme Court should review the case. And attached to that cert petition was a list that had hundreds of suspected federal statutes. And the Solicitor General asked the Supreme Court in March 1973 to review the Moritz case for, and I quote, the Court of Appeals decision cast a cloud of unconstitutionality upon the many federal statutes listed in Appendix E. In 1973, the Supreme Court denied that cert petition, but in Professor Ginsburg's own words, that Appendix E listing all those laws was a treasure trove, her treasure trove. And so for Professor Ginsburg, for litigator Ginsburg, the decision was to systematically address those laws step by step. Now she had an agenda and it took patience, teaching as she described overwhelmingly white, well-heeled and male legislators and judges about the fact that different treatment of women was not in women's favor. 
that Lawn was seen as assisting society to protect women, or as Ginsburg later remarked, to keep them in their place. In another case, Reed versus Reed, that's in 1971, Ruth Bader Ginsburg authored a brief for the Supreme Court, and she later called this case a turning point. Sally Reed had divorced her husband and had tried to keep her son, Richard, out of his father's custody. One day when Richard was staying at his father's house, he died from a bullet shot from one of his father's guns. It might have been a suicide. Sally Reed sought to take charge of her son's belongings and applied to the probate court to be appointed administrator of Richard's estate. The boy's father, Cecil Reed, later, appointed, uh, later applied for the same appointment. The law read at the time, as between persons equally entitled to administer a descendant's estate, males must be preferred to females. It had been argued that the Idaho statute spared the court time and money to decide which between the two persons merited the appointment. The Idaho probate court rejected Sally Reed's application, although it was first in time and instead appointed her husband. Sally Reed fought the case unsuccessfully through the Idaho courts. Now, the brief the ACLU filed urged the Supreme Court to interpret the Equal Protection Clause to review sex discrimination on what is called suspect classification, which means that it's subject to the highest strict scrutiny review that's accorded to race-based discrimination. A unanimous Supreme Court invalidated the Idaho probate provision giving men mandatory preference over women. Chief Justice Berger found that the Idaho's means lacked a rational relationship to the state's objectives. The case showed the arbitrariness of assuming that men are just more competent than women. And while the court purported to review a lower standard than that of rational basis, that of rational basis, what the court did was, in effect, it, it struck down the sex-based classification. And it became a seed for an important principle in equal protection. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg later explained that that sparked a conversation between the court and the legislature and hundreds of laws were changed. And these just first few cases, there were more, as Kelsey had mentioned, served as a prelude just to Ginsburg's first oral argument before the Supreme Court in 1973 is another example, Sharon Franciniero. I believe there is a movie about this. I'm, I might be wrong. A U.S. Air Force lieutenant who tried to secure the same spousal benefits for her husband that her male service counterparts received. Justice Ginsburg's goal was to successfully argue, so she wasn't yet a justice, <laughs> litigator Ginsburg, to successfully argue that a strict scrutiny standard of review should apply to all gender discrimination cases. And though the Supreme Court held 8-1 that unequal benefits for Sharon Frontenero was unconstitutional, Ginsburg's argument fell one vote short. Justice Brennan wrote in 1973 in the Supreme Court plurality opinion, traditionally gender discrimination was rationalized by an attitude of romantic paternalism, which in practical effect put women not on a pedestal, but in a cage. Since then, the Supreme Court has determined that an intermediate heightened scrutiny for laws that discriminate on the basis of gender. A law that differentiates men and women on the base of sex is only constitutional if it's substantially related to an important state interest and based on exceedingly persuasive justification, not administrative convenience or gender stereotype. So to conclude, uh, a good friend and true advocate that's known me for well over 15 years, even when I was just a law student, reminded me to honor the fire by bringing fire. So our work is not done. And in the US, what she means to me, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg means to me, what I hope to hold is that there are a lot more, there's a lot more work to do. There remains important motivations to seek firm constitutional commitment to equality of rights for men and women. 
to prioritize the dignity of the human being. I think, Ruth, as mentioned, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's worked tirelessly. She never slept. She worked all night to get it done. And she sought to, and I quote, place women's rights permanently on the human rights agenda to seek constitutional amendment, to secure adoption of the Equal Rights Amendment, which was mentioned. It was first written in 1923, and it still today requires states ratification. We also have to draw attention beyond the, the United States to the International Forum, where I am more comfortable, where we still need to understand how to give voice to women's economic empowerment to do better at understanding the distributive effects of investment treaties and the impact of trade on women-led services and businesses to advance women's representation in international organizations than sitting in international courts and tribunals and to convince lawmakers around the world of the illegitimacy of gender discrimination and to respect equality. In 2007, Justice Ginsburg was asked, what does a woman's participation on the bench add to the United States judicial system? And she said, our system of justice is surely richer for the diversity of background and experience of its judges. It was poorer when nearly all of its participants were cut from the same mold. And that is to me the thing that I will take away from just having had Ruth Bader Ginsburg here in her life and her contributions to the court. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mona. That was, that was a wonderful, wonderful evocation of the importance of, of Justice Ginsburg, both her earlier career, but also just her her being. And that, you know, I, I'm so glad that you mentioned the, you know, the, the work that remains to be done. As a criminal lawyer, I can certainly assure you there's still a huge amount to be done, uh, even in, you know, in, in systems that don't have the uh, the help of a, a document like the US Constitution. Um, so let's uh, actually where you've ended up, Mona, is, is an absolutely perfect place for me simply to hand over to Anne, uh, who's going to talk about why equality matters. OK, well, thanks. And uh, I'm really delighted to be here. I'm, I'm not um, I'm not myself a, either a lawyer or a legal theorist. And actually, unlike the other members of the panel, I haven't followed the career and contributions of Ruth Bader Ginsburg with anything like the close attention that uh, that she deserved. I mean, until relatively recently, I was mainly aware of her as one of only two women on the Supreme Court, uh, aware that she was one of the justices that uh, American women looked to to defend reproductive rights against successive attempts to curtail them. And under the presidency of, uh, of, of uh, Donald Trump, very much aware that uh, that fear that uh, that her death would bring about uh, a major shift in the composition of the court. So I really didn't appreciate till uh, till recently, and I'm shamed listening to the three of you <laughs> about how recently my understanding of this is just how significant she's been over the decades in in challenging discrimination against women. So especially pleased to be here. I, I as Part of my preparation for tonight, I, uh, I watched the film uh, RBG. And for those of you uh, in the audience who haven't yet seen it, it really is. A, it's a great film because it's got so many of these interviews that uh, uh, that Nikki was talking about. One of the things that I one of the parts in the interviews that I particularly enjoyed, and it's something that you you talked about, Mona, about her um, her feeling in this uh, her reflecting on the period in the 1970s when she was. Um, uh, she was arguing so many of these sex discrimination cases before the Supreme Court. And she she described herself as feeling rather in the position of a kindergarten teacher, you know, having to explain to these men 
who'd never really thought about it, never directly experienced it, just how deep and pervasive sex discrimination in American society and law still went. I mean, in effect, she didn't use these terms, but in effect, she was having to teach them gender 101 uh, in order to get them to see why she was making the cases that she was making. And as she also said in that film, in one of the interviews, it would have been a very different Supreme Court with nine women justices on it. Now, one of the things that it seems to me that, you know, in the cases that she argued and then later in the judgments she made, uh, she brought with her a knowledge of women's lives that the then heavily male-dominated justice system lacked. And perhaps even more than that, she brought to the work a kind of really resolute and persistent challenge uh, to assumptions about what women do or what men do. Um, you know, she never... I mean, as I think has already been noted, she wasn't always seen as especially radical, but she never wavered in her challenge to those assumptions about the way women are, nor challenging the mirror assumptions about the way men are. And I think it's really interesting about the cases in the 70s, and you brought this out, Mona, about the way in which she, uh, she took cases about the exclusion of women from activities that were deemed inappropriate to them. But she also took cases about the exclusion of men from benefits or activities associated with assumptions about what men were supposed to do. Um, I mean, I think, you know, and, and particularly kind of, you know, taking on assumptions about men as the breadwinner and, and women as the wives and mothers. And I think in her, in her time as a judge, I mean, laws remained saturated with assumptions about male and female roles, um, generating, I think, numerous examples where discrimination was simply not seen as discrimination. This is where she needed to play her role as a kindergarten teacher. Uh, discrimination was seen just as a reasonable reflection of the different roles that men and women played in society. Now, and, and of course, the generalizations we're rarely without some basis. I mean, men and women do, on a very average average, perform different roles in society, occupy, you know, different spaces in the, in the social division of labour, uh, and certainly different uh, rewards in the distribution of income. But she, it, you know, it seems to me she never allowed those generalisations to justify unequal treatment. And I, th I think that brings me to the the uh, second thing I wanted to say about her, which, um, which is about her arguments uh, regarding, uh, re regarding abortion rights, um, because it seems to me here, too, that the kind of uh, positions she adopted were very much shaped by her refusal, again, of generalizations about what women do. So I, I kind of noticed that, I mean, in, in 2003, um, there was one of the many bits of legislation that was discussed by the court, which, you know, reduced uh, access to abortion. Um, and the court actually upheld as constitution uh, legislation that banned certain forms of, of late abortion. And this is one of the cases where she wrote, wrote a dissent. And she took aim in that dissent, among other things, at the argument that uh, that some of the other justices had made about the law helping protect women from the regret that many would otherwise feel after undergoing a late abortion. And, and in her view, this reflected a kind of an anti-abortion shibboleth for which the court had no 
reliable evidence. That is that, you know, an assumption that reflected ancient notions about women's place in the family and their essential identification with mothering uh, that had long be or, been or uh, should be discredited. So again, this kind of, this role that she played of consistently challenging these assumptions and stereotypes that, that very much associated with the fact that she was a woman and had had this experience of a woman. Um, but the, I mean, I think it's also kind of, um, I mean, I sort of thinking about this in relation to some of the debates that go on in, in feminist theory. While she was, a, she was a strong supporter of women's rights to abortion, she wasn't, as I understand it, particularly a, a strong supporter of the fact that abortion access to reproductive rights in the States depends so much on this privacy decision in Roe v. Wade. Uh, and she argued in, in ways that uh, I think echo arguments that um, Catherine McKinnon also famously made, that it would have been, you know, in an ideal world, <laughs> it would have been better to frame women's right to legal abortion as a matter of equal protection, you know, abortion as necessary to secure that the rights of women are equally protected with the rights of men, rather than as a uh, a private decision equally prote uh, protected by the constitutional right to privacy. I mean, um, assumptions about the roles of men and the roles of women uh, very often revolve precisely around notions of what's appropriately public and appropriately private. And given you know, how much feminism has had to challenge that public-private divide, which among other things allows police forces and governments to treat domestic violence as a kind of, you know, too much of a private matter to be really um, consistently uh, addressed. Uh, in an ideal world, it wouldn't be your chosen strategy. Um, we're not, of course, in an ideal world, but I, uh, I, I was very struck by the subtlety of her arguments there. So just the final thing um, I wanted to say, and this is, this is slightly broader, is that the kind of the achievements of Justice Ginsburg, and of course the anxieties attached to her replacement, I think expose not only the fragility of uh, a system of rights and protections that could be significantly changed just by one change of personnel, but I think they also, they also expose the fragility of our supposed uh, commitment to the equality of all. I think there's, there's a kind of, slightly over-optimistic story we sometimes tell ourselves about the kind of the last hundred years, seeing it through the kind of prism of a kind of developmental paradigm in which we, you know, we congratulate ourselves on the fact that, um, you know, most societies have recognised the equality of all under the law, uh, have recognised though only after many campaigns and resistance, the equal right of all to vote. Um, and we may then imagine ourselves as simply left with the final stages of this, you know, to uh, achieve the kind of the, the necessary social and economic resources that will uh, help make these legal and political rights more real. Um, well, I think it's undoubtedly the case that to achieve and sustain equality between the sexes, we do need more than equal rights or equal opportunities as enshrined in law. In law. Um, but if we think of this in terms of you know, already having uh, the basic rights, but not yet the social conditions. You know, if we think of it in the language of a developmental trajectory in which we've already successfully achieved 
the first stages, um, then I think we may accept too readily um, that we live in a world where everyone is already recognised as an equal in some basic sense. It's just that the basic sense doesn't get us very far. And it seems to me that one of the things that I take very much from, from the career and the contributions and the significance of Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, is that we can't yet comfort ourselves with the idea that we have even that, that basic sense of equality as secured and guaranteed by our system. I mean, it seems to me that's what, uh, that's what Black Lives Matter is all about. Uh, it's what challenging violence against women is all about. And it's, it's what Ruth Ginsburg had to keep teaching her kindergarten class of Supreme Court justices when she was first making her cases for uh, equal protection. I think part of, part of what it seems to me uh, you know, we learn from thinking about her achievements is, um, is not just the, the fragility of those achievements, the possibilities for reversal, the fact that she ended up having to, the final years of her work as a justice were very much years of writing dissenting opinions rather than being able to uh, change the law in the direction that she thought was appropriate. So not just the fragility of the achievements within the kind of the uh, existing structure of justice, but I think the wider fragility of notions of even uh, basic equality between women and men. So, um, I mean, we're here to, you know, celebrate, <laughs> you know, her life and her achievements, but I think it's, it needs to be with a, um, uh, with a sense of, uh, I suppose, to, yes, to, to echo uh, to echo what everyone has said of, of so much more that, uh, uh, that lays, lies ahead and that needs to be done. Thank you so much. And it's, it's interesting that you mention uh, Catherine McKinnon because um, I'm just going to, I'm doing a little plug here for those of you who are law students in the audience uh, uh, will, I'm sure have been very inspired by the incredible example of Ruth Ginsburg was somebody who, who, as a practicing lawyer, had an extraordinary impact on the world and on the lives of both women and men. Um, but she was also the first to admit that she was and to acknowledge that she had had a lot of inspiration and guidance from academic work as well. And in fact, in particular, Catherine McKinnon's book on the sexual harassment of women. Oh, right, yeah. yeah was she took very much as a sort of way of thinking about uh, sexual harassment as gender discrimination. And, uh, you know, so there are, lo there are lots of different ways of sort of impacting the, the world as a, as a feminist lawyer. And um, we've got some, some questions coming through in the Q&A. Before we move to them, um, Kelsey, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to ask either Mona or Anne anything you wanted to ask, and then we'll move to the audience questions. Yeah, so I'll say also Catherine McKinnon was my um, 1L sex discrimination professor. So everything uh, comes through a terrific yeah. professor. Um, so, you know, Anne, it was interesting. You were just talking about uh, being overly optimistic about the, kind of the trajectory. Um, you know, in the United States, mm. we think Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about the arc of uh, justice being, uh, the arc of history being long, but bending towards justice. And I, I often pair that with um, something Justice Ginsburg said in 2017, which was a particularly, you know, uh, 
a hard four years in our country um, in many ways. And, and what she said was that she was optimistic in the long run uh, that the, the symbol of the United States was not the bald eagle, eagle, but the pendulum. And when it swings too far in one direction, it will go back. Uh, and she was, I think, speaking to us now, looking forward. As um, I, I'm curious if that, that, that certainly resonates with me as my experience as an American woman now in my mid-40s and in my kind of understanding of history over time. And when I think back to kind of my view of the world in 2008, for instance, um, thinking we were on this path forward and then seeing how things shifted here. I, I, I would love to hear kind of uh, parallels um, kind of in the international community. I, I think we've seen a, a lot of similar kind of pendulum swinging in, the, in, the, in, in Europe, but any thoughts you have on that from an international perspective? Yes, well, I think, I think just, just really to repeat, I think there's been a very, uh, a very shared periods of optimism in which people really did think that I mean, so much has changed. I think one of the one of the challenges that faces us is is not to deny the changes. You look back at the cases that uh, Ruth Ginsburg was was fighting in the nineteen seventies, and clearly, think you know, amazing changes were were made and achieved in that period. But to hold in one's mind both the uh, the recognition. Of, of changes and major transformations, major transformations in uh, the proportion of women becoming lawyers, in uh, the entry of women into the labor market, into professional positions, in the opening up of the higher echelons of the justice system to women, not very fast, I should say, uh, certainly not in this country, nor um, as far as I can see in the United States, but, you know, changes to hold that up, that acknowledgement of those changes in tension with a knowledge of there is no guaranteed developmental trajectory, there is no guaranteed arc of justice <laughs> that will lead us uh, to, to the goal of equality. It's, and and I don't, I'm not even entirely confident that it's a pendulum, um, which suggests that it will definitely swing back in the, in the better direction. It's, uh, you know, it, it remains uh, fragile. Um, and I think that that's, we could see that in many countries around the world. Well, we might wonder whether that's one of the reasons that Ruth Bader Ginsburg felt such a responsibility to, to yes. continue the struggle. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, I'm sure we could go on happily debating among ourselves. There are some great questions coming in and what I'm going to do is take them in pairs in the hope that we can get through uh, at least a couple of rounds, maybe three rounds. So I'd like to start with a question from Hannah Wright, who's an MSc student in climate justice at Glasgow Caledonian University. Um, and Hannah says, RBG previously stated that she'd write her dissents as though she was writing a press release getting all the facts and the key messages at the beginning. Do you think she knew that by writing in a style that could be appreciated by those outside the courtroom and to some extent ignoring the standard legalese language meant that she was able to communicate to a wider audience through social, national and global media? It's a great question. And then another question, I don't know who this is from, but Professor Corcoran mentioned the changes in America and American justice uh, in Ruth Bader Ginsburg's last years. Um, 
how now we, we're not going to I should just say to to whoever it is who asked this we can't get into a discussion of uh, Ruth Ginsburg's successor uh, not least because uh, uh, Kelsey Brown Corcoran is a, a practitioner herself who does Supreme Court litigation um, but um, I think we could take the, the sort of sense of your question which is that you know Justice Ginsburg's last wish really was that that her uh, successor should be appointed by, as it were, uh, what I think she would have seen as the proper constitutional process, uh, which was the one that had been insisted on in, in the previous uh, appointment. Um, and so the, the question that this question is asking is really, would RGB have sort of forgiven this? Would she have just shrugged and said, that's part of American culture today? Any thoughts? So her style of dissent, her prose style, how many people it reached and what her attitude was. We have actually a lot of uh, very interesting evidence about her attitude to what was happening in America. And maybe we can just take that question uh, in, in that spirit. So I'll start with the first question, which I think is, is really interesting. Um, I don't I don't know that she ever thought of herself as as writing opinions to the general public. Um, certainly, she never kind of oversimplified or um, her, her style was incredibly detailed and thorough. Uh, I think she saw herself more as, as, as keeping a record and account of uh, what had happened and what had gone wrong in the majority's opinion. She was very aware of her audience. As Anne said, she thought about the justices during the 1970s. She knew she was talking to a panel of men and that she had to educate them about sex discrimination. A lot of her dissents, particularly in the cases involving statutory interpretation, I think were, were more directed at Congress. Uh, her most successful dissent was in the Lily Ledbetter case, which was um, uh, where the majority interpreted our sex discrimination, our statutory sex discrimination law, Title VII, as uh, not allowing uh, a woman who's discriminated against in uh, pay to get back pay beyond a very limited period of time. Uh, and Justice Ginsburg wrote a dissent where she explained most women aren't going to know that they're getting paid less than their male counterparts until months, years have gone by. As a, as a practical matter, they're not going to be comfortable bringing suit right away. And so it would make more no sense to have this very narrow statute of limitations for being able to recover damages. Well, two, three years later, Congress changed the law to reflect her dissent. That was uh, uh, you know, meant uh, a lot to her. And so most of her dissents are still unfulfilled. That Hobby Lobby one I mentioned before, also statutory. Uh, it was the, the majority said that a federal statutory law uh, gave corporations religious rights. Well, Congress can change that. Um, and if you know the American people uh, disagree with that interpretation of the law, they want the law to be different, they, they can act, uh, vote for legislators who will change that law. Um, so I think I, I, she certainly was holding on to that dissenter's hope that what she was writing would, would lead to change later and aware of her audience. Um, but it wasn't so much in the kind of cultural phenomenon sense of kind of feeding her popularity as it was um, very kind of concretely uh, targeting the, the people who could make the change she thought was necessary. Thank you. Anybody else want to come in on the that or the other question? Actually, can I can I just say something on the the importance of these dissents? It's it's kind of something that's been 
discussed in, in some of the political theory literature uh, in terms of uh, how within the context of democracies, one deals with expert opinion and the kind of the, the traps between either thinking that hand it all over to experts, if the experts say it, then it should just be done or the kind of disparaging of expert opinion and the denial that experts know anything, which are the sort of the two extremes and how to, how to, how to kind of in democracies to, to think about the fact that experts have something to say, but there are disagreements even within scientific communities say, and, and people um, have uh, some of the people working on this have pointed to the, uh, the, the system of dissent within the Supreme Court and that kind of capacity to, to publish and make available reasoned arguments that reach different conclusions, right? And the way in which that potentially enhances public discourse and understanding of the kind of the, well, the, the, the complications of arriving at conclusions on, on issues that are often quite, quite complex and lend themselves to different conclusions. Um, there is a way in which the Supreme Court, we, I mean, one, one worries about the politicization of the Supreme Court and it kind of becoming kind of like party, party political appointments and so on. But that the kind of politicization, which is the public having access to thinking about the, the, the basis for complicated legal judgments is actually rather, is, is rather an impressive part of the, of that system that comes out of the Supreme Court and is perhaps the, it's the positive side of the politicization of, of Supreme, uh, Supreme Court judgments. No, no. Um, I was just gonna add too that I, I don't know obviously why she, you know, how she wrote or her motivations, but Kelsey already, you know, illuminated us to the fact that she wrote to the point, every word was careful. And I think what's interesting about Hannah's question is this fact that there were clearly young people who were engaged and they saw her, there were these, you know, there is no truth without Ruth. And so that she, I don't think, I, I mean, I don't know if she was speaking, writing to, for them, she was writing for the law to be truthful, to be right. And it engaged this perfect storm where, where young people were at this moment where they wanted to hear truth and they became captivated by the law in this moment, which I think, you know, is a wonderful other element that, that people, because they responded to her and her words, began to attend and to listen. And there is that um, that engagement that I think very much in the United States in the past four years, but even before that, of, of young people beginning with the rise of social media to be far more concerned and to connect with one another. And that, I think, is actually, you know, more emblematic of that of that point, of the engagement of the wider audience, of, of everyone. I, I don't remember where I read it, but that when she did dissent, that people reacted, they knew, they gathered, they read it. And that is an amazing thing when you think about, you know, I think about other <laughs> dissents or opinions in, in other courts or, you know, do they garner that kind of attention? And that that is something I hope that people continue to be as engaged with the law and what the Supreme Court does. But also, of course, looking at other courts and tribunals, that that engagement, the importance of why you look at that law, as Kelsey said, to evoke change, to speak to Congress. That is something I hope that her legacy lasts beyond her life. 
Thank you all. And I think we just have to, on the forgiveness question, I think we just have to say, those of you who've watched her will know that, uh, among other things, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has, was uh, the, the supreme mistress of um, avoiding political questions or questions she didn't want to answer, but sort of answering them by with one of her meaningful silences. So I think we'll just give her a dignified silence on this question and, and move on. We have two more questions which I'd like to fit in and uh, great questions again. So the first is this, one of the speakers mentioned the majority of women law students at law school. When might we see a majority of women on the UK or US yes, Supreme Courts? Justice Ginsburg said she'd be comfortable with 100% women as we've had 100% men many times. Here, here, Justice Ginsburg. And secondly, a question for Kelsey. Is she and any other of the clerks of RBG going to follow in those great footsteps and try to ascend the bench? Aspiring to meet the challenge of nine women judges on the bench or a bench that would make Ruth Bader Ginsburg proud. That's a, a lovely question. It's a timely question, too, because um, so the justice has three former clerks that are currently judges, um, all men. But uh, just this week, her first female clerk was nominated uh, to the bench. Uh, Rachel Apter was nominated to the New Jersey Supreme Court. So I know the justice would be really I think that I have not actually that that's I think that's true. I'm not aware of any other of her female clerks being um, judges. So forgive me if I'm wrong about that. But I think I think this is the first time it's happened. And I hope there will be many more. I think there are many of us who would be delighted to be um, judges at some point um, in terms of whether the, the U.S. Supreme Court will ever be nine women. I I doubt it, um, uh, partly because uh there's a difference in administrations in terms of how much diversity on the bench is a priority. So we just came off four years where um, neither gender nor racial diversity were a priority at all. So we saw lots and lots of white men moving onto the bench. Um, this current administration, the Biden administration has not uh, had any judicial nominations yet. Um, they have uh, expressed their commitment to um, uh, diversity on the bench, but we'll have to see. But that back and forth we have here, uh, and I think most countries have, I, I think will we'll prevent the court from ever becoming uh, all women, but I hope we'll, we'll see more than the, the, the three we have now. Any thoughts, Roman and Mona, on, on the prospects in this country? Well, I don't think the prospects are good, but I think it's also the case that given that um, it's, it, I mean, people have listened to the arguments against there being nine men or 12 men or whatever the, uh, the particular uh, number is on, what, on a country's Supreme Court. People have listened to the arguments to the extent of recognizing that an all-male court is completely unacceptable. The difficulty then, of, of course, is that having listened to that argument and moving very, very slowly towards something that's closer to parity, the chance of then being able to convince people that just as we used to have all male courts, now we could have all female ones, uh, is, is, very, is very limited because the argument has been, the argument for some kind of, for moving in the direction of parity uh, has carried its weight from the absurdity of having an all male Supreme Court. So, um, so I don't anticipate that uh, arriving uh, but I do think there will be uh, continual incremental moves in the direction of a kind of, uh, I think, I suspect, well, anyway, maybe we'll get a majority at some point in my lifetime. I'll have to keep living. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I think you have to start small. 
So you have, you insist that academic conferences don't have all male white panels and you insist that, you know, uh, you insist that if, and you speak up and you note that, you know, you invite, I am an editor, you ask female reviewers and you, you spread it through that. That is from my academic perspective and, and hopefully within law firms and law schools, um, you speak to students and you tell them about the law and you start there and, and hopefully the next generation, I have a daughter, um, she can be president of the world whenever she wants. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe that. Uh, so that's, I, I think that is the steps of doing it and, and aggressively pursuing the broader agenda, you know, of what we've spoken about tonight uh, to, to continue to fight for equal rights here around the world to stand up, to draw attention to it is uh, something we can work on, each of us. I must say that I was particularly delighted when I discovered that particular quote from Justice Ginsburg. Uh, As someone who, in an earlier part of my career, when I was the only woman fellow at one of the Oxford colleges, and I've done a lot of campaigning, and I remember being asked by a journalist. um, So I gather that there are now a third of women students at New College. It had been an all-male college for most of its history. Uh, do you think that a third, uh, that means that uh, the level has reached its natural limit? And I think that just speaks volumes about those assumptions that Anne was talking about, that Justice Ginsburg was, uh, you know, was so concerned throughout her life uh, to, to tackle. Um, and uh, I think, uh, you know, she, we, I think there are, I agree with you, we're, we're not going to get an all-female court in this country. Um, it would be nice that we didn't go two steps forward and then three steps back. And and I do think it really comes back to the point that Anne concluded with, doesn't it, that this struggle is not is not over. We've made enormous gains and we must celebrate those. And it's that's why we celebrate Ruth Ginsburg and her extraordinary contributions. But uh, we also have to remember that we owe her carrying on and not not uh, not giving up at this point. Um, does any I just ask, I think we haven't got any more questions in the, in the Q&A, but I wondered if any of you have questions for each other. We've covered a lot of ground in this last hour and a half. So I think with that, I would just like to uh, thank you uh, again, all of you for being here and especially you, uh, Kelsey, for uh, coming to the LSE. We very much hope to welcome you in in you know in person physically geographically one of these days um it's been fantastic just hearing your insights both personal and intellectual uh and uh it's uh, just a great been a great pleasure for me uh so thank you very very much thank you all of you in the audience for taking part and uh we look forward very much to seeing you at another event soon thank you it was such a joy to be with you all thank you so much Thank you.